Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you all for joining us. This is From the Newsroom, our weekly forum from the Holland Sentinel News staff devoted to weekly topics. In the news, stories we're covering. I am Brian Bernalis. I am Digital Director, joined today by Sarah Leach, our editor. Hello, Brian. Hello, Sarah. And sitting to my right, Audra Gamble, public safety reporter. Hey. Hey. Uh, I thought today we would discuss, well, actually, Audra, you brought this up. You want to discuss this. Um, and it certainly has been in the news. You were in Grand Rapids for the case. No, it wasn't Grand Rapids. Where it was, was it? Grand Haven. Grand Haven. I knew it was a Grand Yeah, you're something. getting mixed up with that, the last podcast that we did. <laughs> yes, which was in Grand Rapids. Yeah. Okay. Uh, this is the case of uh, Michael Scott McNeil. Yes. Okay. <laughs> in the case of the murder of Sherry. McNeil. Yes. And um, this was in late July in yeah. Port Sheldon. So it was July 24, okay. I believe. Um, yep. It kind of in the middle of the night around 3.45 okay. in the morning. Um, and this is a failed attempted murder-suicide. So um, Sherry McNeil, Mike McNeil's wife, um, was found dead in a horse trailer in the kind of front of their property in Port Sheldon Township. And then Mike McNeil, Sherry's husband, um, was found with some what police believed at the time to be self-inflicted gunshot wounds to the face um, in a failed suicide attempt after allegedly shooting and killing his wife. So the news that came out last week was his appearance in court. Correct. Yeah. So uh, last Wednesday, which was the 9th, I believe, um, I went to Grand Haven for a preliminary exam, which is kind of the first time that the nitty gritty details will come out in court. Um, He's still probably a few months at least away from a full on trial. Um, But this was the first time in a courtroom we heard testimony from police, witnesses, the couple's son, um, and learned a little bit more about kind of the situation leading up to the events that night, morning, Mm -hmm. middle of the night, however we want to say that. Um, And then some evidence that police found after the fact. What can we divulge at this point um, for our listeners? So uh, basically the the kind of new information that we have is that uh, the couple had been married for, for quite a length of time. They have a 17-year-old son together who is finishing his last year at West Ottawa High School. Um, and in court, the son actually testified. And he said that for a length of time, his father, Mike McNeil, had a pretty significant alcohol problem. And his mom just kind of got fed up with it. And so about a week or so before her death, she actually left and went to stay with some friends in the Holland area just to kind of give herself some space, Mm. take a minute, you know. Um, Mike McNeil, during that time, um, tried to 
show basically that she was, that he was serious about changing the situation. Um, in, in the efforts for reconciliation. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So he actually, um, he went on some sort of medication to, um, stem an alcohol addiction. He reproposed to her in Sagatuck just a couple of days before her death. Um, however, which she accepted, which she accepted. Correct. Um, however, uh, Sherry McNeil had kind of as a joke, um, based on a suggestion from a friend is how it was phrased in court, made a, an online dating profile on a website and had started talking to a man in Pennsylvania. Um, and Mike McNeil found out, um, and then the events leading up to her death occurred. Okay. So police are, are, and prosecutors are postulating that that is the motive for the crime. Correct. Uh, after reading your story, uh, it was particularly um, moving to read about the, the their son taking the stand and, and reading through some of his testimony. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's always hard when children testify. I mean, it's a scary situation for anyone to stand up in court. Uh, this young man was very articulate. He really held himself together and he was there when all of this happened at the home. Mm-hmm. He, um, unfortunately, he's the one who discovered, discovered his mother's his body. Mother's body yeah. Right. Um, he saw his father with significant facial wounds. He was there when the cops came, this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so he really is in the middle of this. And unfortunately, you know, his mother is dead now. His, father is incarcerated and and he's staying with family in the area um but it's it's a lot to put on the shoulders of a 17 year old that's for sure and the composure he showed i mean you know as somebody in the mid 40s i don't think i could handle that kind i know of. i know well and something that audra um was was mentioning to me earlier is that when police respond to a scene like this they don't know what they're walking into. They often have a few basics to work off of, which aren't always accurate. And when they got to the scene, they didn't immediately. Um, the, the, obviously, the victim was inside of a of a trailer that was separate from the home, and Mike McNeil was in the pole barn, kind of like around, you know, off to the side. So when the son realized that the cops were there. He came out, and so he had to be handcuffed for a while because police okay. did not know if he was a threat or if he was involved in some way. And sure. so that that just kind of speaks to the um, the horrific experience that this that this teenager went through, and and how he was able to um, to kind of get through it. And sure. yeah, to show that kind of dignity and grace in court is quite admirable. Yeah. And I, I did want to kind of run through just sort of the details that we learned mm-hmm. in terms of the sequence of events, because I know we'll touch on those sure. a little bit moving forward. Um, so the son, um, his name is Casey McNeil. Uh, he was up playing video games with his friends on Xbox. Uh, you know, they were on headsets together and, and playing electronically, not physically in the same room, but, you know, playing online. Um, like I said, it was around 3.45 ish in the morning. It was, it was summer, you know, he was up late mm-hmm. being a teenage boy. Yep. Right. Yeah. Um, he hears a, a what he said was kind of a snapping noise from the front yard. And so he goes to the front door of their home 
and he sees his father with a weapon coming out of a horse trailer that was on the front of their property. The, they lived on a little bit of property. They had a few horses, that kind of thing. Um, the father then walks around the home to the pole, bar- pole barn, which is kind of behind a little bit, if you can picture like a path, you mm-hmm. know, from the home to the pole barn. Um, and, and Casey actually leaves the home and goes into the horse trailer where he finds his mother. Um, he described, you know, in detail in court what he saw. He said he shook his mother, screamed a couple of things. When he realized she was deceased, um, he went back into the home and actually barricaded himself um, in his parents' bedroom and shoved a treadmill that was in the room in front of the door. Um, his father went to the pole barn and then allegedly tried to shoot himself with a fairly high caliber rifle, by the way, mm-hmm. uh, or high powered. I apologize. Right. Um, and then when police came, uh, the first deputy at the scene said that Mike McNeil was kind of wandering around the front yard of the home at that time. So he had gone to the pole barn, allegedly tried to kill himself and then returned to the front yard of the home, which is this, the scene that police found. So what's the next um, step in this process that he faces? So um, Mike McNeil is obviously facing a murder charge. Um, Like I said, it's probably going to be a few months until we see a full trial. Um, But the preliminary exam was was kind of the first step. So that happened in 58th District Court. And now it's going to be bound over to 20th Circuit Court in Grand Haven. Um, for further proceedings at the end of, you know, the result will be some sort of sentence probably. Okay. Uh, and I know we were going through our um, talking points before we started to record. And one of the things we wanted to bring up, um, you mentioned he sustained severe facial injuries. Correct. Uh, and he was at University of Michigan Hospital, correct? He was, yeah. yeah. So um, the weapon that police found at the scene that they're, you know, believe was used in, in this incident was a 25-06 bolt-action rifle, okay. um, which for gun nuts, I'm sure they'll, they'll understand, is a really um, high-powered rifle. Mm-hmm. It's for shooting things at a distance. Right. And, and the, the son said he believed he saw some sort of a scope on the weapon. Like, it, it's kind of like a, yeah, like a long-distance mm-hmm. hunting rifle. Right. Um, so... If you think about the logistics of using a rifle in a self-inflicted injury, um, Mike McNeil's face had some damage to the jaw, and then a significant portion of his nose was gone. Um, And police actually found a a bullet hole in the roof of the pole barn, kind of that upward trajectory. Um, So he was originally taken from the scene to a hospital in Grand Rapids, And then it was determined that he needed a little bit more specified care. So he stayed for several weeks um, in U of M's head and neck surgery unit. And one of the things uh, that surprised me, you mentioned, was that, did that become his official address then? So it's, um, when they issued the arrest warrant for him. He was in U of M hospital. So in court documents, his address is listed as U of M Mm -hmm. just because that's where he was currently residing. Uh, There's some logistics to having an inmate in custody 
needing medical care that I think a lot of people aren't familiar with. So for the full time that he was at U of M, he was still in the custody of the Ottawa County Sheriff's Office, which means he was under armed guard while he was in the hospital. So sheriff's deputies had to travel to the east side of the state and rotate out shifts at U of M Hospital, all of which is at the cost of the Ottawa County taxpayer. Mm-hmm. Do we know the cost? Yet? I don't have a total I mean, dollar amount, but yeah. I, I have talked to Sheriff Steve Kemker about this, and he did say that it was a significant expense. Mm-hmm. Okay. Because they're also paying for overtime, I would guess. I mean, they're definitely paying for like all of that travel. Yeah. So you have that um, person out of rotation yeah. for other duties. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's people off of road patrol or, right, you know, mm-hmm. whatever their, their normal assignment is. And the cost of transporting back and forth, because I believe that he has he had to make a couple of trips once he was well enough to travel. I think that there were some some reconstructive visits for search. Yeah, he had Correct. several procedures done. Yeah. yeah. So where is he lodged now? Is he? So he's he's at Ottawa County Jail, but it okay. took a good, gosh, at least three weeks for mm. him to be well enough to travel um, back to Ottawa County Jail and be formally booked in the jail as an mm-hmm. inmate. Right. Um, which is kind of an unusual situation. And and there, I mean, there is nurse care, you know, in the jail, but right. definitely not, you know, facial reconstructive surgeons. That's, that's right. not something that the jail has yeah, on staff. Their, their goal is to make him well enough to put through the legal process. Sounds so, good. Yeah. Which is why, by the way, there was such a length of time between when the actual event happened and when this preliminary exam took place for it to be from July to January for Mm -hmm. there to be a prelim exam is a pretty long time. But, um, you kind of have to be aware of someone's appearance and health is right. Affecting the court case. They have to be able to assist their attorney in aiding in their own defense. Correct. That's, That's one of the thresholds of having it be a fair process. I wanted to bring you in. Thank you. This is a good segue. Mm-hmm. Sarah, uh, we had discussion when that photo was released from Ottawa County yes. of his mugshot. It's with, quite graphic, yes. It is quite graphic. And we had a discussion in the newsroom, and I don't know if you want to talk about the process that journalists go through when we decide what should we run, right? what can we hold back, you know, what's, how, much what's is the public, yeah, how much is the public's <laughs> right to know? Right. Well, yeah, so we we were following the case and waiting for him to be in the jail. And then once he was officially booked, the mugshots for Ottawa County inmates are posted online and they are available to the public. We saw the image. We had a, a visceral reaction. Sure. <laughs> I don't think that yeah. I'm overstating that because it is quite grotesque. It, um, yeah, I mean, it's like his nose is... Yeah, there's a hole there. Gone. Right, right, right. I mean... You know, yeah, and so we um, we had an internal discussion in the newsroom as to what would be the most appropriate way to present this to the public while we are being true to the to reality and the story, and this is just what is, um, and then also trying to not necessarily gross all of our readers out. Uh, online, the images appear larger than they do in print, especially when you're using just a headshot of a person. We have certain, you know, um, templates that we use on our website that enlarge photographs. So we opted to have, um, not that image as our main image so that it wasn't unnecessarily 
large. And then we also put in a graphic warning um, on the website so that people were aware, especially in social media, that if they clicked on the link, that they were going to see something that potentially could be offensive to them visually. And just to kind of introduce readers to a little bit of jargon internally, we, we, we use a, a term called the breakfast test sometimes. When we're talking about details of, of, a, of a case, um, how far to go into depth in terms of describing a crime scene or the acts that, um, that might really be disturbing language, uh, we, we, we apply this rule as to if I were an average person reading my paper in the morning, with my coffee. Would I want to lose my breakfast, you know, bringing this in, you know, taking this information sure. in? And so we, we figured that this was uh, something that would be highly inflammatory, so we tried to treat it appropriately. Now, in print, our mugshots run very small, so we felt a little bit more comfortable running it uh, at the scale of it was probably no larger than a dime or a nickel. Right. And so I was more comfortable with, with presenting that um in print versus online. But obviously, as technology evolves, we have to have these kinds of challenging conversations as these bizarre cases yeah. come out. Yeah, and particularly on Facebook and mm-hmm. Yeah, where we, where we get a huge m- resonance with yeah. our readers. Like, that's sure. one of the main traffic um, gateways to our website. Yeah, and I think that we've, at any point in our uh, professional career as journalists, we've all had that moment where something did yes. not pass the breakfast yeah, test. Yeah, when, oh, when you're responding to a yeah. to a scene where yeah. there's a fatality and, you know, don't, uh, if there's a sheet that's covering somebody, even if you're not necessarily seeing something that's graphic, is it appropriate? Is it necessary to tell the story? We have to ask, stop and ask ourselves those kinds of questions yes. before we just, you know, I mean, blast it out online. Yeah, we're not the National Enquirer right. and we're not trying to We're generate, not in it for shock value. Uh, yeah, right? and it's not for clickbait reasons. Right, but I, right, but I mean, with there, there was a part of the conversation that we had that was, okay, the sheriff's office released this image to the public. Right. It's, it's pub- up online. It's publicly available. Right. Right. I right. mean, people were... Um, already viewing that image Mm -hmm. and so then it's a case of all right yes this is kind of gnarly however this is also available to anyone who wants to see it so it's kind of a a balancing act of like sarah said that breakfast test versus but it is reality and you don't necessarily want to hide people from the, the reality of what this case is it happened Lots of people knew about it. Sure. They wanted to understand what happened. And that's part of telling the story of what happened is, you know, this, this alleged, you know, failed suicide. Right. Attempt. Right. And, and I mean, a lot of people knew it happened also because, um, Sherry McNeil was fairly active in the community. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She owned a fitness business. She rode her horses in the tulip time parades. Right. I mean, she, uh, was an involved member of the community. So a lot of people cared and this story touched a lot of people. And it also, um, raised some questions and the, the Center for Women in Transition sent us statements about, um, you know, domestic violence and, mm-hmm. and spousal abuse. And mm-hmm. I'm not saying that these are specifically the case here, but it right. raised a lot of community questions. Right. Um, so we wanted to make sure we were doing our our jobs to provide full context of situations, which sometimes means some details that are unsavory. Right. Well, and with the full knowledge that regardless of whether or not this goes to trial, we're going to be following it through the paces of 
I mean, I'm I, assuming that there are going to be future hearings, um, potential sentencings. He's going to be there, and is and is he's going to look the way he's looking, right? So there's no way to hide that permanently from people just from a comfort level. It, it's reality, yeah. and that's what people are going to see in the courtroom. Has he had cosmetic surgery, or have they tried to reconstruct the nose? Um, because of some privacy laws, I don't know specific medical procedures that he's had, mm. but I mean, it looks less bad yeah. than it did than mm-hmm. than his nose did in the the initial mugshot. Um, I well, can't. I, I, yeah, I would. I would sort of liken it to a little bit to like a like a cleft palate sort of a situation where you have an opening in the yeah in the face, and that can have some. You're, you could be prone to infection. Right, yes. eating might be challenging, especially in a jail where right. there's a ton of people. It's kind of like right. you know being at a school sort of thing. Right. Yeah. So they have to get them to a certain point where they're able to kind of function with minimal care in order to get through the legal process. Gotcha. gotcha. One of the other kind of strange things about this case was the way that police were contacted initially. Um, so, like I said, Casey McNeil was playing video games online with his friends. He's playing Fortnite. <laughs> um, so when he was um, on his headset, his friends heard that snap sound, which ended up being gunshots. Um, he obviously, you know, threw the headset down and, and stopped playing the video game and went and investigated. But um, he called those same friends again on Facebook Messenger, like a group call, after he had barricaded himself in his parents' bedroom. So wow. he is not the one that called 911. One of the friends that he was playing video games with is the one that called 911. Who was in another location, which Correct. is very, and very interesting it aspect is. of the case. Um, and when, when the sheriff's office arrived on the scene, they were very wary because it kind of sounded like um, a swatting call, which is when a third party will um, call in something that may or may not be a real emergency to either put a law enforcement officer in danger or Or to like pull a prank. Right. Right. Um, And honestly, the deputies didn't really know what they were walking into because it was this strange third party situation of a kid and a video game. And like, that's, that's unusual. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's um, another component of this, this case that kind of, took a minute to figure out and assess the situation and secure the scene and, and figure out what was going on in this kind of complicated Well, scenario. thank goodness that they did alert the police because who knows how things would have turned out. We could yeah. have had, you know, lost, lost more people. Yeah. Correct. So I'm sure, uh, Audra, you'll be following this case closely. Yeah, we will be. Um, a, a full trial date has not been set yet, but we will continue to update people as, as that data set and comes nearer. Thank you all for listening. I'm Brian Bernalis for Sarah Leach and Audra Gamble. This is From the Newsroom. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.